Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake, and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. Hey, y'all. <laughs> it's me, Troy McKeady. Uh Hi, welcome to episode 148 of Dunzo. We are back, 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 back again with another Whitney and Bobby update, another entry to the saga. And um, I don't know if excited is the term I would use to describe the way I feel about all of the information I'm about to deliver to you. Um, it's, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's one, I can recall typing out one positive thing in this whole episode and even that wasn't like necessarily positive it was just like the only slightly good information everything else is doom and gloom so I hope you're in the mood for some true doom and gloom today because that's what you're getting this is a sad 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 episode lots and lots and lots of just dark sad depressing information um we are, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to be tying this up fairly shortly. There may be like one or two episodes left, but I think that we're kind of getting to the end. I'm probably going to devote an entire episode to Whitney's, actually, there's probably about, I could probably milk out like two or three more episodes of this. I think Bobby Christina deserves, you know, I think she deserves her own episode. Like she deserves like a post Whitney's death moment. You know what I mean? Um, and yeah, and also, uh, I feel like I should say right at the top, this is something I think still confuses people, and I I completely understand why it would confuse you, because it is kind of confusing, and I apologize for that. The Patreon for this podcast is patreon.com slash solid listen. Um, I say it at the end of all of the episodes. If you are, a lot of you are discovering this podcast through... Um, old episodes, a lot of you are discovering, from what I find, are discovering this podcast through sort of going back and binging super, super old episodes when it had a different name. This podcast used to be called The Smush Room. I haven't said those words in a long time. Um, It used to be called The Smush Room, and um, there was a different Patreon associated uh, with this podcast at that time because it had a different name, and uh, a lot's changed since then, so... If you are listening to this and you are new here, the Patreon associated with this podcast is patreon.com slash solid listen. I get a lot of messages from people being like, your Patreon's confusing and why do you give a link that doesn't exist? And I'm like, girl, I know, but you're listening to a three-year-old episode. So I just wanted to uh, clear that up. It's also posted on my Instagram the link to our uh, Patreon is posted there, and again, I say it at the end of every episode, so hopefully that makes it a little a little bit less confusing, but I guess it doesn't help if you're listening to, like, you know, the second episode. I don't know what to tell you. You'll just have to find your way, follow my voice, follow the light. Hey, y'all, it's me, Troy McEady. Um, welcome to episode 148 of Dunzo. The Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown saga continues. We are deep, deep, deep into this now. Um, 
I don't know at this point how long this is going to go. I mean, I said that at the beginning, but I really don't know now. I'm thinking that I could probably milk out like two or three more episodes of this. Maybe two. I do think Bobby Christina deserves her own post-Whitney's death episode because, I mean, there's so much to cover. Her coma, I mean, all of the shit with Nick Gordon and Dr. Phil and just all of the things. So I'll probably give Bobby Christina her own episode. I mean, she did do a reality show about her family after this that exposed a lot. Um, Her death was eerily similar to Whitney's. And we're not there yet. We're not talking about Whitney's death today, but I just, I don't know. I feel like I should let that be known. I don't know exactly how many more episodes of this will do, but um, we'll get there. We're close. We're like approaching the end, sort of. Um, And also thank you guys for the positive feedback on my Free Britney episode last week. That was, that was something. (laughs) An hour of me screaming at you and you liked it. Thank you. Um... I'm going to have to occasionally pop little Free Britney moments in between because, you know, the Free Britney movement is really, really taking some crazy turns. And I do want to actually talk a little bit more about her Instagram and all of the stuff going on with her Instagram. I think that was sort of like, I just needed to say all of that stuff, but I really do want to get into all of the crazy conspiracy shit happening with her Instagram. I think there's a lot of validity to it. And, um... Yeah. Anyway, also, before we get started, I just want to say that I got a lot of messages from you guys. There are a lot of you listening to this that have discovered this podcast, you know, sort of recently, fairly recently. And you are, or there's a lot of people who are going back and listening to old episodes because they just found the podcast. And I very much appreciate that. I want to make something very clear. The The name of this podcast at a certain point changed. And the Patreon link for this podcast also changed. And I get a lot of messages from people being like, this is confusing. What's your Patreon? And I understand it because that is confusing. The Patreon for this podcast is patreon.com slash solid listen. And all of the episodes are available for free in full on Patreon. So... All of those old episodes that are split in half, because that's how I used to release this podcast, they are all free, in full, on Patreon, and uh, yeah, I'm also obviously doing Being Bobby Brown on Patreon as well, um, for bonus content, so lots of stuff happening there. Anyway, let's get into it. Well, folks, we are officially here. We finally made it. If you've been listening to all of these episodes, if you've been, you know, along the way the whole time for this Whitney and Bobby saga, you've probably secretly been waiting for this moment. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm excited to deliver all of this depressing, sad information about, like, a woman becoming ravaged by the the entertainment industry. I can't say that I'm excited, but... um, There's a lot of really, really fascinating stuff to talk about today. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, we are at the early 2000s, Mad TV parody, Diane Sawyer, Crack is Whack, Wendy Williams, Rail Thin, I don't know, drugs have become the priority, fucking Whitney Houston, like, literally step right up. (laughs) This is the era of Whitney's life where she becomes known as 
someone who shows up hours and hours late to events, if she shows up at all. This is the Whitney that may or may not be a massive liability if she does manage to sit down for an interview because God only knows what will come out of her mouth. And the point that I like to make very clear is that this is also the Whitney who, on top of having a massive drug addiction, is just like a fully grown-ass woman with an opinion about the way she's being talked about and the way she's being treated. This is classic, like, you know, celebrity meltdown where the person in question gives all of this ammunition, basically. All of the, they, they give us everything we need to rip them apart. You know what I mean? And I was also thinking about how weird it is or how weird it must be to realize that the public sees you as this very specific thing that's been sort of crafted by a team of people. And in most cases, against your will. So when shit hits the fan and you really do need people to see you and listen to you and really hear you because you've got some sort of like code blue situation finally happening. Anyone capable or willing to put up a fight for you is gone. You know what I mean? It's usually too late because you've pushed everybody away. Every decent person in your life is gone. When you get to the point of Whitney Houston in the year 2000 being you know, 80 pounds and having no voice and, you know, being riddled by drugs, you have clearly pushed away everybody in your life who is good for you. And it has to be a real, you know, sort of sobering moment to look around and realize that the people that you have around you who who claim to love you, people like your family, people that you've known your entire life, couldn't possibly love you. They couldn't possibly care about you. There, there has to be some sort of disconnect that's happened at some point because they've all allowed things to go this far. Can you also imagine the emotional like disconnect that she had from her family in the year 2000? Like we are several decades into them using her and manipulating her and abusing her. And fucking smoking and snorting every penny she's earned. She is literally a walking skeleton. She's rattling bones. Her voice is shot. She's having these embarrassing manic episodes on stage. And she's ruining her public image. And they still have the nerve to be working her to the literal bone. And gone are the days of Whitney being remembered as someone who at one point was like this beautiful prom queen with a big voice, you know, and at the end of the day, like messy Whitney was big business. We all know how much the public loves, you know, a fall from grace. We, I mean, we've talked about that at nauseum on this podcast, but it's unavoidable. It's an unavoidable conversation when it comes to Whitney Houston during the year 2000. And I know that I've mentioned it a couple times already, but it's like, There's also no denying at this point. There's absolutely no denying from anyone when you look at Whitney Houston perform during this time that her voice was essentially non-existent. And she knew it. And we knew it. The world knew it. Everybody knew at this point. We maybe weren't talking about it as much as you would think, but like, because it was like a weird thing that people had to really come to terms with, I feel. Like it took a long time for us to come to terms with the fact that Whitney's voice was gone. It was like, no, no, no. She just has to stop smoking for a couple weeks and everything will be fine. And 
she'll be able to perform I Will Always Love You, and it's Whitney Houston, and she's the voice, and it'll be fine. Like, we didn't want to come to terms with the fact that Whitney Houston's voice was gone. It was gone. There was damage done to her voice that she would never be able to undo. It was gone. And it was really, really painful to watch this woman who at one time was so confident in her vocal ability that all she needed was, as I always say, the Whitney Houston arsenal, a pretty dress, a microphone, and a towel. That was the Whitney arsenal. She didn't even need a band. As long as she had a working microphone and a towel and a glit- and a, a glittery, glitzy dress, then you had a show. That was the Whitney Houston arsenal. And Whitney Houston had the fucking world in the palm of her hand when she sang, and she knew it. And it was always fun watching her know it. That was the great thing, is like watching Whitney be so self-aware and so aware of the fact that her voice is so good and so powerful that she can control a room of, you know, 100,000 people with a single note. She can send people into hysterics with a single note. And it was fun watching her use her entire body like a crafted instrument. It's also so insane to me that we're programmed as a society to watch things like this happen and we just have sort of come to expect it. Like it's just something that happens when you get too famous or whatever. And we're so programmed that when we're in the midst of it happening to people again and again and again and again that we care about deeply... We consistently wait until it's too late to start showing any sort of remorse. And it's like, you know, now we live in this like super, 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 super PC time where the delivery of how you attack a person is more important than you actually attacking people. Like as long as you're using like woke terms to attack people, as long as you're using woke terminology and, uh, not offending any groups as you attack somebody into a fucking grave, then it's fine. <laughs> it's, we're, it's, it's crazy. We never learn. As mentioned, the beginning of the 2000s represents a time in Whitney's life where she no longer made performing her priority. Like, the business of Whitney Houston and Whitney Houston Incorporated was on the way, way, way back burner for her to the point that the pot wasn't even turned on. It was, the lid was on, <laughs> and it was not even at a simmer. She didn't give a fuck. Her career was the only thing she was allowed to care about for so long that at a certain point, I feel like she was just like, you know what? I unapologetically care about three things. Bobby, drugs, and my kid. That's it. I don't give a fuck about anything else. All of this other stuff is... Like, she didn't have anything to prove, and everything else was more so about just, like, maintaining a financial stat, like, a financial status, you know what I mean? I think she did a lot of things for money that she didn't care about at all. I think doing eight years of soundtrack albums that don't really represent you as a person was really damaging to her, um, like, mentally, just releasing all this work that she didn't give a shit about. And let's also remind ourselves that Robin is now gone. Bobby is completely out of control and he has her exactly where he wants her. She is officially putty in his hands and there's nobody around to stop him from dragging her down to the fucking depths of hell with him. 
I also feel like I should specify because I have been so sort of back and forth when it comes to how much of a villain role I think Bobby really plays in her life. I mentioned in this week's bonus episode that I I didn't believe, how do I say this? I don't believe you can be as close to someone as they were for as long as they knew each other and have it be all bad. Like, I think there has to be some level of love and admiration there, especially after having a kid together. But I think Bobby's insecurities outweighed his love for this woman. And he spent the better the better part of a decade going out of his way to destroy her name in an attempt to equalize them and put them on the same, you know, on a level playing field. So at a certain point, Bobby successfully kicked Whitney Houston off of the pedestal that held her above him. And at a certain point in the 2000s, it was like, yeah, Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown are pretty much the same person at this point. Like, they are the same. They are one body, one spirit, one mind, one soul. And Bobby was like, if I'm going to be on the D-list, then bitch, you are going to be on the D-list with me, whether you like it or not. And Whitney was like, well... I love this man, so I'm going to knowingly and willingly let him destroy my name. Like, it was just the weirdest thing to watch. On January 17th of the year 2000, Whitney Houston was found in possession of marijuana at an airport in Hawaii. Um, Apparently, she was... This is actually amazing. (laughs) She was about to board a plane headed for San Francisco. And she got searched by a security officer, and they found a half ounce of weed in her purse. And the purse was seized by the officers. And before they could detain her, she just walked away. So they took her purse and they were going to like dump it out and examine it further. And when they turned around, she was just getting on a plane and like left the bag. And another major, major controversy that took place at the beginning of the year was the now infamous Oscar debacle. And that seems to be the term everyone used to describe it, the debacle. So Whitney Houston was asked to sing a medley at the 72nd Annual Academy Awards. And first of all, let's just start here. This was already shaping up to be a very strange event. We were living in a post-Y2K weirdness and we were still sort of like unsure of what the new world would look like and the new millennium and you know were we really safe and was it all a hoax and you know were our computers gonna fuck up were they maybe gonna do it a little bit later um you know the year 2000 especially at the very the very beginning was really really weird before the actual taping of the show all of this weird <laughs> Really weird shit kept happening back to back. Uh, Once the Academy and the producers of the show realized that the world wasn't in fact going to end, they made this mad dash to put these last minute, you know, finishing touches on this half-assed show because they literally were like, we don't even know if the world will have TV because that's like, (laughs) that's, that was the gig at that time in late 1999. Somehow thousands of Oscar ballots got misplaced and the mail containing the voting sheets were misrouted and lost. And like they put they put like a a reward on them if you could find them. And then some guy 
found them and the academy gave him like a really shitty check and they invited him to come to the oscars so he sat in the front row of the oscars with his paycheck from the academy for finding their lost mail just like so strange then in the midst of all this stuff happening 55 oscars were stolen off the back of a truck (laughs) which totally i mean you know when there are 55 oscars out in the world that can just be sold on like ebay or whatever it kind of ruins the whole thing you know like they kind of don't mean anything anymore when a bunch of strangers also have oscars that don't it's amazing it's just it's this could only happen in the year 2000 this was also the same year the creators of South Park showed up in Jennifer Lopez and Gwyneth Paltrow drag, and they admitted to being on LSD while they walked the red carpet. This was the year Angelina Jolie and her brother tongue kissed on the red carpet as well. So to top it off, let's ask a drug-riddled Whitney Houston to open the show. And to be fair, this is like the kind of gig that made that would have made complete sense for Whitney Houston maybe like four years prior. Burt Bacharach was also brought in to orchestrate the band and it was supposed to be this grand medley of classic Hollywood songs starting with Somewhere Over the Rainbow and according to Burt during the rehearsal Whitney was like switching up the melodies and you know that was something she would do sort of starting at this time until the end of her life where because she couldn't sing anymore she would rearrange the songs so that she could just talk through them, basically. Somewhere! Of the rainbow! Web high! It was a lot of that. It was a lot of, like, pointing into the audience and making them sing and jumping up in the air and throwing your fists up in the air. Just anything to to divert from the fact that she couldn't sing a single note. She was also forgetting all of the words and coming in at the wrong times And he described it in the Showtime documentary as a startling train wreck. And, you know, this was the Thursday before the show was set to tape, which was on Sunday, I believe. And uh, they made the decision at the last minute to fire Whitney. Actually, they fired her the first day of rehearsal. So she showed up on Thursday to rehearse for the first time. They were there for like an hour. And then they were like, you, there's no fucking way that you can do this. Um, And of course, her publicist lied to the public and said that she wasn't performing because she had a tickle in her throat. The Guardian wrote an article about this in the year 2000 where they said, A statement from Arista Records claims that, quote, Whitney Houston arrived in Los Angeles with a sore throat. After participating in rehearsal both Thursday and Friday nights, she was unsure she would be better by Sunday. She therefore regretfully withdrew from the performance. But this official explanation does not tally with the views of others within the auditorium, who allege that Houston was effectively fired by the Academy's musical director, Burt Bacharach, and Don Waz. The New York Post quotes a source close to the production who claims that Houston only rehearsed on Thursday night, under duress, uh, and for 15 minutes only. Houston says the source was, in quotes, totally out of it and discombobulated. She came in on cue for one number but missed her cue for the second one and sang with the wrong song. Afterwards, Bacharach apparently told her, just leave, it's not going to work out, just go. The latest Houston fiasco comes barely a month after she was arrested by Hawaiian Customs under suspicion of possessing a sizable quantity of marijuana. 
Houston, it is alleged, gave officials the slip and boarded a plane and boarded a plane back to the U.S. mainland before Hawaiian police could arrive at the airport. She is currently awaiting charges, which, if successful, could result in a 30-day jail sentence. Inevitably, Hollywood is rife with rumors that the singer is showing signs of coming apart at the seams. Another very interesting moment to take place during this time was Whitney's Out Magazine interview, where she was photographed by David LaChapelle and confronted about her relationship with Robin again. (laughs) There's a section of my notes that says parentheses, Troy from the past, aka Troy, who's taking notes right now, wants you to know that I am going to be reading a lot from this interview because it's really, really powerful, and for the first time, it shows how much of a badass Whitney was, even through the darkest periods of her life as a public figure. Um, I wrote that note at around 3.30, 4 in the morning, and I don't remember saying it at all, but when I scroll down, I do see a lot of notes here from Out Magazine, and I do remember this being uh super super quotable and just this really really good i think that this is one of the most telling interviews of who whitney houston is in the year 2000 the interview starts with her saying are you ready for this make sure you're sitting down the interview starts with her saying i ain't hoeing <laughs> i ain't hoeing says whitney houston the world's number one pop r&b goddess slash potty mouth queen I ain't sucking no dick. I ain't getting on my knees. Something must be wrong. I can't just sing. I can't just be a really talented, gifted person. So she's got to be gay. Yeah, that's what you're in for. I've got a lot of, I basically wrote down the whole interview. Like I basically copied and pasted the entire interview. But trust me, it is so, it is so worth it. I ain't hoeing. That's the new name of this podcast, by the way. And my housewife's tagline. I I turn around, I have a high slit, I flip the slit, I cross my arms and I say, I ain't hoeing. Houston's way of addressing the question, the one that's been hovering over her for all these years, despite her marriage to Bobby Brown, despite motherhood, despite her multi-platinum all-American church going Kevin Costner starring crossover to and from every which away image, says so much more about her than her answer, an answer we're not going to give away right now. Yeah, this is Girlfriend's first big gay interview, something queer guys and gals from Kentucky to Kalamazoo have been craving since we first found Sissy Houston's daughter, the cousin of Dionne Warwick, calling to us across the airwaves in the mid-80s, singing about saving all her love for somebody. There's so much more to Houston's connection to gay culture than her much-speculated-upon sexual orientation. And with the release of her double-disc greatest hits comes uh, an occasion to repraise the omnipresent sister we've watched break records and survive trends since she's become a near instant uh, superstar at age 21. From how will I know to love will save the day, that girl's gone, says the 36-year-old singer as she sits in the lounge of the Beverly Hills Hotel, surveying the collection's proposed list of tracks. From I will always love you on, that's a woman. Her facial expressions flash and pierce with the power of a woman who can charm and do battle. This is amazing. Remind her of a distasteful tabloid inquiry and her eyes will zero in on yours as if you personally dreamed up the headline and put it into the printing press yourself. Bring her back to a happy memory and she'll share her joy with the generous familiarity, oh God, I can't say that word, of a bosom buddy. Although Houston is known for this eccentric celebrity shtick, 
The release of The Greatest Hits may allow her to inhabit a role that blockbuster films like 1992's The Bodyguard and her platinum records haven't. She may finally become hip and cool. This major foray into dance music is part of an ongoing transformation. Faced with the impossibility of matching the astronomical 36 million copies sold internationally of the Bodyguard soundtrack, Houston has since focused on narrowing the chasm between her popularity-driven past and the hip-hop-defined present, between her goody-goody marketing profile and her actual life. The pastel-clad Whitney who twirled through that wonderfully tacky How Will I Know music video would never have allowed herself to be caught at a Hawaii airport with pot in her pocketbook. She would never have collaborated with street-bred artists like Missy Elliott, Wyclef Jean, Faith Evans, and Rodney Jerkins. The old Whitney would never have turned the party out at last year's New York City lesbian and gay pride celebration. They have a couple paragraphs in the article that I won't read about how the year 2000 introduces us to like dance era Whitney. And uh, she said, I was singing Making Money, an independent woman. Houston recalls of the explosive success of her 1985 debut, Whitney Houston, which held the record for the best-selling solo female debut album until Alanis Morissette came along. She said, I had come out of an all-girls academy, signed a contract, traveled the world. I didn't know anything about pressure. I just knew that I, I just knew what I had to do. Whitney snaps her fingers, what I wanted to do, snap. <laughs> now that's pressure. Now I got a kid. I got to try and keep her head together. I got to nurture her soul. Whitney's, refer, uh, Whitney's referring to Bobby Christina, her seven-year-old daughter with husband Bobby Brown, ex-New Edition singer and solo bad boy who's shared many a tabloid headline with his wife. I watched the way my mother dealt with gay people, Houston says. They could tell her anything and she wouldn't trip. She would just be like, uh, if so-and-so doesn't treat you right, then fuck them, leave them, and move on to the next thing. It was about relationships and loving each other. Which, like... This is the same woman who sat in front of Oprah with a fucking shake-and-go Halloween wig and told Oprah on national television that she forbid her daughter from being gay. Almost from the start, the media treated Whitney Houston with suspicion. While Prince pushed outrage, race, and otherness, Davis marketed Houston as a squeaky-clean all-American songbird, adept in both mainstream-targeted dance numbers and star-search-ready warblers, warblers, okay, I hate that word, like the greatest love of all. After the initial glow of her church background and star pedigree faded, the tabloid media started snooping for Dish on the omnipresent yet mysterious star. Who is this Afro-American kid coming in here and singing pop music like Barbara Streisand, Houston says, recalling the tabloid attitude towards her at the time. We have to inspect this girl. We have to pick her apart. Barbara had her day too, you know, as an American Jewish girl. So did Diane Carroll and Lena Horne. They had real tough issues to deal with grinning on stage with the white people and then coming home and having to deal with the civil rights issues. They picked me apart because I surpassed the so-called rules. I beat the Beatles and the Elvises. During her early hit years, Houston did very few interviews. Music industry insiders suggest that Davis limited the media's access to Houston because of this, this because of the disparity between her white friendly image and her proudly black manner. Her proudly black manner. It wasn't long before the apparent vacuum of her personal life filled with a persistent rumor that the diva was a dyke. How did that get started? Hmm, hesitates the usually quick-witted star. I suppose it comes from knowing people who are. I don't care who you sleep with. If I'm your friend, I'm your friend. I have friends who are in the community, and 
I'm sure that in my days of being out, hanging out with friends, having nothing but females around me, something's got to be wrong with that. Push closer to the question and Houston's playful demeanor vanishes, replaced by the bitterness that's often defined her media profile. Listen, I took a lot of grief for shit that wasn't me and had nothing to do with me, okay? Because I had friends, because I was too close to people. She says, eyes blazing and hands waving. <laughs> but that ain't me. I know who I am. I'm a mother. I'm a woman. I'm a heterosexual, period. But I love everybody. And if I was gay, I'd be proud to tell you because I ain't that kind of girl to say, no, nah, that ain't me. <laughs> the thing that hurt me the most is that they tried to pin something on me that I was not. My mother raised me to never, ever be ashamed of what I am. But I'm not a lesbian, darling. I'm not, laughs Houston. <laughs> Later, later when the interview was over, she introduces me to her, her to her assistant Robin, who obviously was working for her. Before this, obviously was uh, this interview was done before Robin left. The woman said in the tabloids to be her girlfriend. The introduction suggests these longtime friends have nothing to hide. I mentioned to uh, Houston that perhaps her new public gay friendliness, such as this out cover story is not simply an opportunity to make sure the homo market buys a hit pack buys a hits package sweetened with dance mixes and songs they've bought several times before but a chance for her to set the record straight so to speak about her sexual orientation and move on listen i always move on she says nothing can stop me from moving on what didn't kill me made me stronger sweetie people still don't believe me i did another interview today and after an hour and a half of talking to the guy he said i still don't feel like i know you i think he was looking for something he didn't find trying to understand if i was a jeans and t-shirts kind of girl or a gowns girl is she r&b or is she pop who is she i'm a mother thank you <laughs> I love to hear my child call me mommy. That's what I am. I'm not a lesbian. I'm not gay. Not all that bullshit. I don't want to hear that. It's over. It's done. Houston's typical defensiveness suggests, of course, that she hasn't really moved on at all. When I tell her that I do believe she's straight, she retorts, it's not for you to believe me. I don't give a fuck what you believe. <laughs> Sometimes, I swear to you, it feels like nothing is going to go my way, Houston says with a self-aware petulance. Then I look at my little girl and I know that she needs me for me and not anything else. That makes me want to live on so much harder because I can't stand to think the world would teach her something I wouldn't teach her. That makes me live, baby. And that's sad, right? Like, that's a really, really sad way to end that interview. But how good is that interview? Like, the Whitney... I mean, let's just take this in for a second because... Anytime we've talked about this before, anytime we've talked about an interviewer asking Whitney about her sexuality, she always gives this sort of like PR, very like, you know, make sure you say this and make sure you say it with a smile and be a good girl kind of interview or response. And in this one, she's like, fuck you. I like dick. I don't give a fuck what you think I am. I'm not here for you to be. I'm not here to like be analyzed by you. Your opinion of me doesn't matter. Like, she wants these people to know how much they've affected her. Even the fact that she brought up, you know, that, you know, she sort of views herself as this former victim. Like, she used to be somebody who couldn't speak up for herself. And she used to be somebody who had to apologize and explain why she was famous and why she was allowed to exist in these spaces that people couldn't understand her occupying. Um as she put it, you know, outselling the Beatles and the Elvises of the world, you know, that was like, 
I don't know. It's just really, it's like, it's, it's, uh, it gives me a different perspective of this really dark, sad time in her life where it's like, of course, you know, I, I don't forget the fact that Whitney Houston is a drug addict, but it's like, she's also a fucking grown ass woman and like a badass who has overcome her fear of speaking up for herself. I actually, if you really want to know the truth, I think it's insulting to say that Whitney was only acting the way she was acting because she was high all the time. Like, that's not, you know, it's like, sure, her personality was all amped up and in, in, in level 10 because she was high off of her fucking ass. But what she was saying was actually pretty layered and like really deep and had a lot of uh, a lot of meaning behind it. I think this is a person who had reached a very well-deserved breaking point. Now, on top of the Oscar debacle and the drug possession in Hawaii, she also very publicly dipped out on an interview with Jane Magazine, RIP. Apparently, she was originally scheduled to do an interview at her home, but then she changed her mind last minute, so she invited the interviewer out to dinner, and the interviewer went, and then Whitney canceled right before meeting the person. She was told... um, or she told the writer that the reason she didn't show up is because she cracked her tooth and had to had to have an emergency dental something done. Um, and the writer told the New York Post, although I wasn't there, the folks who directed the shoot said that when Whitney arrived, she was extremely unfocused, had trouble keeping her eyes open, and kept singing and playing an imaginary piano on the table. Sorry. Vin Diesel just fucking drove by. It was playing an imaginary piano on the table. She was acting really strange. Her eyes were very heavy-lidded. And I guess laughing gas can do that to you. So they finally get her to sit down for this interview after waiting four hours for her to show up. And some of the, I guess you could say, wackier moments from the interview got posted all over the place. They were reposted and I keep saying posted, republished through the New York Post and the New York Times and Vanity Fair. Um, It says she went to her seven-year-old daughter, Bobby Christina's uh, school the day after the Hawaii airport officials allegedly found a half ounce of pot in her purse. She said, I had to sit with my daughter and ask her, do you want to go to school? And she said, yeah, I do. And I said, are you afraid to go to school? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, then we'll go together. And if I have to sit in a classroom with you, if I have to sit there in the first grade with you, I'll go so nobody fucks with you. And I'll be the biggest first grader they ever met to protect my child. She says there's no feud between she and Mariah Carey. She calls me lamb and I call her chop. It's an endearing thing, she said. She denied having a les- and quote, lesbo affair with her executive assistant, Robin Crawford. She said hanging out with a president or a junkie is equally gratifying. She said they're all just the same. The president gets off on the on the country. The junkie gets off on a couple of hits. They are the same. They are both cut from the same cloth. They're just men. You dig? Uh, Jesus. People Magazine also wrote an article about her that said, Since Houston's flame out at the Academy Awards on March 26, gossip has swirled about the velvet-throated pop diva, Long dodged by rumors that A, her marriage to singer Bobby Brown, 33, is on the rocks. B, that Brown is abusive to Houston. C, Brown is a womanizer. And D, that Houston is actually gay. 
the scuttlebutt du jour is that E, Houston 36, has a drug problem that is destroying her singing ability. Never mind that Houston has denied all of these rumors many, many times, including such explicit statements as, I'm not gay, I'm not a lesbian, and I'm not a drug addict, uh, says someone close to Houston. There are really serious concerns about her condition. It's a total problem. Dionne Warwick and Natalie Cole were going to talk to Whitney about her drug problem. Natalie is, a, Natalie is really a voice of authority on this because of what she's been through with drugs. But they didn't talk to her, and I don't, don't, and I don't know why. Um, it may have helped. What's happening? I'm having a stroke. It may have helped. While Natalie Cole declined comment, Newsweek reported last week that Arista Records president Clive Davis, who signed Houston to Arista at age, at age 19, has uh, steered her career ever since, approached Whitney's family to do an intervention, and the outcome is currently unknown. Whitney was also scheduled to perform at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony honoring Clive Davis, but she didn't show up, and People Magazine said, There's a lot of denial from the people around Whitney Houston, says a close source to the singer. They just chalk up her behavior to being a diva. But why is no one reading her the riot act? It's because she's the financial, financial source for all of them. They don't want to cross her. It didn't take long for Houston to devolve into celebrity joke fodder. At an April 3rd Broadway Cares Benefit tribute to Elton John, Actor Nathan Lane drew huge laughs when he quipped to his co-host, actress Christine Bransky. Thanks so much for filling in at the last minute for Whitney Houston. Seizing the moment, Bransky then pinched the end of her microphone and sniffed it, a pantomime strongly suggestive of snorting cocaine. And to play devil's advocate, since I'm constantly dragging the fucking Houston family through the rocks, there were several failed attempts at getting Whitney to go get help. Um, Robin Crawford admitted in her book that a big reason for her resigning as Whitney's executive assistant was because she turned down rehab. And Rolling Stone also reported that Sissy Houston staged a failed intervention in the summer of 1999. It should also be noted that Whitney did release a very successful double disc album. This is the part that I told you about at the beginning that was like happy or whatever. A Greatest Hits album, uh, we love those, in May of the year 2000, with a very iconic album cover shot by David LaChapelle. The album was, as mentioned earlier, by Out Magazine, Whitney's attempt at sort of extending an olive branch to the younger audience, to the young gays. Um, this was only a couple years after the release of Cher's Believe, which really spearheaded dance music being, you know, sort of reintroduced to the mainstream. And like making, just making dance music popular again in the, in the late 90s. And Whitney's team wanted a piece of that, that like dance music craze that was still sort of happening. Um, Now we've gone this entire time without, with like barely mentioning Bobby. So I feel like I should mention the messiness that is Bobby Brown's ass in the year 2000. So in the beginning of the year... Bobby was arrested on an outstanding warrant that had been issued in June of 1999, where he tested positive for cocaine while being on probation, and a judge denied his request for bond because, quote, his wealth made him a flight risk. I don't, I don't know what that, again, I don't, if you listen to the bonus episode, I made it very clear, I never understand any judge's ruling, I don't understand anything involving court I don't understand what a bond is. I don't understand anything. I don't understand 
anything involving court. Court jargon is so confusing to me. So uh, the judge deemed him a flight risk because he was rich or something. So he was sentenced to 75 days in jail. And Bobby ended up completing a drug rehabilitation program and was then released. And then uh, he was picked up by Whitney in a white limousine. This is, of course, where we get that now very iconic clip of that news clip of Whitney, you know, pulling up in the limo and running to him barefoot while he's being escorted out of prison and jumping into his arms you know, and they have this very passionate kiss. Um, and then he, like, carries her into the backseat of the limo while her legs are wrapped around him. And I'm sure they fucked real, real good right in front of the driver, right in the back seat. And in August of 2001, Whitney signed what was said to be the biggest record deal in music history. She renewed her contract with Arista um, for a hundred million dollars, a hundred million dollar record contract and promised to release six more albums. And, um, she was also going to uh, receive royalties for that music. So fucking crazy. In September of 2001, Whitney Houston made a television appearance that would change not only her career, but the remainder of her life. She never, ever really was able to bounce back from this moment. This was a real, true, defining moment for her. There was before Michael Jackson's 30th anniversary celebration, and there was after. Let's talk about it. At the time, this concert was truly the event of the century. Tickets for the show sold out in two hours and are noted as being some of the most expensive concert tickets in history. Um, the best seats, I think, sold for like $10,000, and it got you a dinner with Michael, with a drugged and bloated Michael Jackson. Um, the show featured Usher, Maya, Mark Anthony, Liza Minnelli, Destiny's Child, Elizabeth Taylor, Britney, Sync, Gloria Estefan, Chris Tucker, Ray Charles, Monica, Marlon Brando came out and gave a really, really weird speech. The list really just goes on and on, and all of that is to say that the entire world was watching this show, was watching this concert, and it was a fucking disaster on many, many accounts. Whitney performed a version of Wanna Be Starting Something, where she sort of talked her way through the notes. How to get up! To look! Get up now! Stuck in the middle! Like, she never really sang anything. Um, but the singing wasn't really the focus. It wasn't really about how badly Whitney was singing. The elephant in the room was her appearance. Whitney was the thinnest we had ever seen her. You could literally make out every bone in her upper half, including all of her ribs, she was so thin that the producers of the show digitally added weight to her body, which is really, like, really, really terrifying considering how scary she still looked. Like, what we saw was the digitally remastered version of Whitney Houston. And the real cherry on top of this Sunday was that as Whitney Houston, in her full-on skeletal state, 
is straining her way through these songs, the camera is continuously zooming in on Michael Jackson, who is very clearly high off his ass. He could barely keep his eyes open. He's sort of sluggishly snapping his fingers to what he thinks is music. He's like half asleep at most most points of the show. He's a fucking disaster. It was confirmed later that he was, I don't remember the name of the medication, but he was on some medication that makes you drowsy uh, and it makes you hallucinate. So uh, people have speculated and people have said, like sources who were like with him were saying that he was literally seeing things on stage that weren't there. He was hallucinating. So when you go back and watch this, which I know you're obviously going to bring up Whitney's performance on YouTube right now. I'm not an idiot. Just know that Michael Jackson is like fully hallucinating as she's performing. He's seeing things. It's crazy. Whitney's hairstylist said that before the performance, she could recall all of these people coming up to Whitney and telling her how fabulous she looked and how beautiful she looked and how glamorous she looked and blah, blah, blah. And uh, she ended up taking Whitney into a bathroom and she pulled up her shirt and made Whitney look at herself in the mirror and they both cried and she said you're going to die Whitney like look at you you're gonna die and Whitney responded and said I know and I don't know what to do this is a quote from that same article I think it was uh, from the Guardian that I mentioned earlier It says, concern over Whitney Houston's health has grown after she pulled out of the second Michael Jackson gala concert at the last minute. The singer looked emaciated when she sang at the first of the shows in New York City. She refused to say why she would not appear at Madison Square Garden for Jackson's second comeback concert. Whitney sang for five minutes at the first concert on, on Friday, but her appearance shocked the audience. The singer appeared to have lost an enormous amount of weight in the 18 months, 18 months since she's last performed publicly. Internet columnist Matt Drudge said, Images of Houston completely wasting away into skeletonism and appearing to be at stages of illness beyond even Karen Carpenter before she passed away is very haunting. Uh, ABC's Barbara Walters said, Whitney Houston looks like a skeleton. And after the performance, I'm going to actually end the episode on this note. Um, after the performance, Clive Davis wrote Whitney a letter begging her to get help, where he says, Dearest Whitney, when I saw you Friday night at the Michael Jackson concert, I gasped. When I got home, I cried. My dear, dear Whitney, the time has come. Of course, I know you don't want to hear this. Of course, I know you're saying that Clive is being foolishly dramatic. And of course, I know that your power of denial is in overdrive, dismissing everything I and everyone else is saying to you. I join your mother in pleading with you to face up to the truth now, right now. And there's no more time or postponement. You need to get help and it must begin right now. I will stand with you and I love you and I will care for you and I will see you through to the newfound peace and happiness in every way as a woman, as a mother, as a role model, (laughs) a role model to inspire the rest of the world. Love, Clive Davis. And it's like, 
you know, I, I can't speak to how many interventions they they tried to have with Whitney before, but it's like, obviously, when she's at a point where she's now literal bones, the only thing she cares about is getting fucked up and having sex with her husband, and she is rattling bones. Of course, now you want to do something. I joined Sissy Houston in the fight to stop this drug addiction. Like, yeah, of course you fucking do. Because now, now it's unavoidable. Now it's interfering with your money, with your cash flow. Now you can't cattle prod her out on stage and force her to still be charming. Now she's gone so far that that charming, sweet girl is no longer. To the point that she's telling you in interviews, I'm not that girl. Anything I sang before I Will Always Love You was not me as an adult woman. I am now an adult woman. That girl is dead. Hi, I'm Whitney Houston. Nice to meet you. I don't give a fuck if you think I'm gay. I'm not. And also just like to end on a, uh, to I forgot to mention this earlier as far as Whitney's sexuality. I believe that Whitney died thinking she was straight. I really do. I believe that Whitney went her entire life thinking based on her beliefs based on what was beat into her head, based on what her family believed, based on what she thought she was. I think that Whitney died thinking that she was a straight woman who had an intense relationship with a woman at some point in her life that she put a stop to romantically. I don't think Whitney Houston died thinking she was like some sexually fluid, whatever. I think she really is being serious when she's like, no, bitch, I'm straight. You know what I mean? I don't know. She's old school. Anyway, um, that's the end of that. We are 52, what is it, 53 minutes in. I think this is a good place to stop. I will see you guys next week. Um, I've got a really, really, really fun guest for the next episode of Being Bobby Brown that I'm super, super excited about. We haven't recorded together in a long time, so that's going to be fun. Um, I love you guys very much, and I hope that you enjoyed this episode. And uh, yeah, bye. Thank you for listening to Dunzo. This podcast is a part of the Solid Listen Network. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Also be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McGee, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.